0: Hello and welcome to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Aston, alongside Dr. Dante. We're here today to talk about your health, your body, and how we can help you fix it. And we're getting into a very sleepy episode. So I hope we don't put you to sleep because we're going to talk about sleep today. Now you may be wondering how in the world sleep relates to osteopathic medicine. What I want you, what we need to help you understand is that osteopathic medicine encompasses all forms and aspects of health, not just musculoskeletal issues. So that's why we're gonna talk about sleep, and it comes down to your brain. Now the brain, in a very simple sense, is very much like the command center of a computer system. You've got your CPU that uh, processes all of the data and you've got a hard drive to store data. Now in a traditional computer system for the last few decades we've been using magnetic hard drives and they have a series of disks in them that are spinning at high speeds and they store data. One of the problems with the traditional hard drives is the way the files are stored on these systems. The files can get scattered all across the hard drive. And if you don't defragment the hard drive, then the whole system slows down as you try to find data and put the files back together again as part of the processing of data. And to solve that problem, software companies developed what's called a defragmenter or defragmentation software. The defragmentation software reaches out onto the hard drive, finds where different files are portions of files files are are stored and brings them into a centralized location so it's easier to access them in the future. Newer uh, solid-state hard drives don't have this issue, but the old magnetic hard drives definitely had that issue. Our brain functions very much in the same way. We store data in our brain for either short-term retrieval or long-term use. And our brain has to defragment that data, if you will, so that it can be permanently stored or stored for long term. So the question becomes, how do you defragment your brain? And that is why we're going to talk about sleep. So how are we going to make this work better? Well, we've got to sharpen our skills. So talk to us about this, Dr. Dante. So
1: admittedly, I'm actually not that competent with a computer. I'm about as competent as a older millennial ought to be, so I can navigate. (laughs) But my sophistication with machinery is somewhat limited. When I was looking into the literature for this episode, I really wasn't thinking in terms of computer and defragging until just about the show prep before this. The image that came to mind was actually something from Game of Thrones, because that's the thing to talk about nowadays, it seems. There was a character, Tyrion Lannister, he's a counselor. He's, he's, uh, he drinks and he knows things. That's really what sums up his character. Um, he's not really an action guy. He's not really a fighter guy. And he said a very beautiful line, um, both in the show and in the book. It's, a mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone. And what he was conveying is this idea that for the activity that you're about, whether that's combat or counseling or whatever it is, you need that thing which heals you. You need that thing which keeps you sharp. You need that thing which keeps you good to go. For our bodies, for all the insane, beautiful, crazy, mundane things it does, it tends to want to fall apart after a while. Entropy
0: is king, remember. Well, our metabolic processes, especially in the brain, because the brain is a place where there's a lot of metabolic activity, Right. probably more so than anywhere else in the body. And all of those chemical reactions produce junk. They produce garbage and trash that needs to be dealt with. Right. And that junk is both junk data,
1: as in bad data packets that need to be defragged. Mm-hmm. It's also literal junk, as in the metabolic products, because remember, we're a chemical system and we produce physical, chemical um, waste products after our, pro- after our activities, such as adenosine or just straight up glutamate and so on and so forth, and we mm-hmm. kind of need to wash that stuff away. We need something to sop up all that uh, waste product and get it out of there. Remember the lymphatic stuff we talk about isn't just for our hands and our heart and our toes and whatnot. It's also for our brain, as in the brain must drain every now and again. Something needs to flush it out. The garbage truck's got to come by and pick up the trash. Indeed, indeed. So sleep for the human physiology is that sharpening mechanism, is that
0: flushing, that cleaning, that honing mechanism. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So we've emphasized throughout this podcast the body's innate systems built in to help heal and of any of the innate systems built to help heal sleep is probably one of the most effective and the most important systems right and we're not saying that out of
1: hyperbole we mean that in the sense of so there's three commonly understood pillars to wellness not health in the grand context but that thing which is a healthy body it's your movement, your nutrition, and your rest, your recovery, Right. and it's a common thing to conceptualize them as the three pillars of health or the three pillars of wellness. But we challenge that. It's not so much that it's three pillars. Maybe it's two, food, uh, nutrition, and movement. Those two pillars, though, have to stand on something. The foundation upon which our pillars stand on is our sleep, as in. Without sleep, these other two pillars are ungrounded, they have nothing to stand on, and the whole thing comes toppling down as collapses. in we die.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was a study, I think it was out of Greece a while back, that uh, looked at taking the siesta period out of the, the uh, Greek lifestyle. And what they found was a significant increase in cardiovascular in events and decrease in health that seemed to just correlate with reduced sleep taking naps out in the afternoon. Right. And you think, oh, that's, that cannot possibly be what's
1: happening. So, uh, what? It's a nap. We don't need naps. We're, yeah. we're grown men and women. We can make it throughout the day. But as people began to investigate that physiology, we're learning more and more that now they're on to something. There's actually meaningful harm done by taking away sleep, even in the mildest sense. And after looking at this data, I challenge even my own sentence. I don't want to call it mild anymore because my perception of the importance of adequate sleep has transformed drastically. Let's start talking about the actual way through which sleep heals us. There's two from what I understand, correct? Right,
0: right. So sleep has a number of important roles. One of those roles, as you mentioned, was dealing with data. Do we want to keep the data long-term or short-term? And while we sleep, that's when our brain finally has the chance to sort through that data. I mean, you think about it from a standpoint of receiving information. When you're awake, your brain is receiving millions of messages, a constant barrage. It's almost kind of like social media, right? Constant barrage of information. You know how much I love Twitter. (laughs) The Twitterverse just makes our blood pressure go up a little bit, (laughs) or a lot of it. Uh, Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, And the brain doesn't have a chance to sort through all of that information when it's awake because it has to deal with that information. It's only when you sleep that you're able to take information and categorize it both for storage and for removal. Right. And if I remember correctly, there's
1: two key phases of the process. So um, in our med school training, we typically learn about sleep in stages, right? Stage one, two, three, four plus REM, and then you cycle through that multiple times right, throughout the night. Right. What became more useful was to conceptualize it a little differently. It still has the four stages, absolutely. Sure. But it was breaking it up into non-REM sleep and REM sleep. And for those who don't know, REM sleep, that's rapid eye movement sleep, is the one that most folks typically associate with dream sleep. Now, that's not quite true, because we dream in both phases. However, uh, for you know, for most folks, that's what they understand it as. It's mm-hmm. that. Uh, Crazy, wild, delusional, holy, amazing. I'm Lucy flying the sky through with the sky, rain.
0: and I'm seeing a bunch of amazing things. Right, yeah, for sure. Versus when you just repeat your day, like in slow mo, which right. is a little
1: bit of a different thing. So NREM is your memory consolidation. That's your reflection time. That's when you take all the day's data and you look at it and go, you know, what this is? This is worth keeping. I can trash this. Um, imagine if you could, if your brain, if your day's data is like a like a USB, this is you saying, I like this, I'm going to transfer this over to the hard drive, which is our neocortex. This I can probably delete. Just throw it in the trash bin. Right. Yeah. REM sleep is the wild part though. REM sleep, that's your wild dream sleep. What that does is it consolidates the data you already have. So if NREM sleep prunes the data to see what's Mm -hmm. worthy of keeping, REM sleep takes all the data you have and says, what happens if I take this memory from once upon a time and connect it to what I had for dinner today. Now I'm going to start dreaming about, like, I don't know, red wagons on top of my dinner plate, or I don't know.
0: <laughs> Things get pretty crazy <laughs> Flying lasagna exactly. that's uh, skying over your head. Maybe that's for how the sure. Flying Spaghetti Monster got created. Oh, boy. Or James and the Giant Peach. <laughs>
1: or anything from Tim Burton's
0: anything. Well, yeah, that, that's for sure,
1: for sure. Right, but all that is the, that is the role of sleep. That is the function um, to take the data of the day and to do something with it so that it
0: doesn't muddle our heads. And that's why you look at these cyclical patterns of sleep, you have multiple episodes of each during the night. One of the reasons w- why we say you need at least seven to eight hours of sleep, it's only in that seven to eight hours of sleep that you have the three episodes of, of REM sleep that you need. Uh, if you cut it short, you're, you're cutting yourself off from at least one, if not two cycles of REM sleep that you're not able to uh, solidify those memories. Uh, it's, it's interesting to look at the data, but uh, it strongly suggests that if you sleep eight hours, seven to eight hours after a good strong study session, you get more memory of that study session than if you study multiple times and have less sleep.
1: So you're saying all those all-nighters we polled as med students might have been a bad idea?
0: Yeah, it didn't work out as well as we thought. It might have helped us study or get a better score on a test, but the uh, there's a lot of stuff in medical school that I've forgotten over the years.
1: True story. I actually, there's, there's an entire month of my second year of med school that I, as much as I try, I can't remember for nothing. It was a forgettable month. Clearly. Like, <laughs> one, at some point I was studying and then all of a sudden I'm taking my board exam. Somewhere in between I learned pediatrics and I took a pediatric exam and I passed. Clearly, are those I would be here? You have evidence that you were there studying. Right, right. There's a camera somewhere showing me in the building doing something. I, I got nothing. I do not remember <laughs> anything of that other than the data that I actually kept, which is kind of cool. But if you tell me when I studied, what I took, I don't remember taking an exam. Mm. That's missing, like probably Swiss cheese. For good,
0: probably for good reasons.
1: Clearly, <laughs> maybe we'll call it PTSD. I don't know. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> but it Close calls a test study disease. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Uh, no, that that was bad.
1: That was that was.
0: That was awful. And that did not work. <laughs> now,
1: <laughs> but it, it eludes this idea that r- this same period where I don't remember a significant amount of my life, which we joke about, but that's actually pretty terrifying.
0: Um, which the brain also does on purpose. Indeed, in, in many cases.
1: I remember sleeping on average, maybe two to four hours per two days.
0: Yeah. Because boards was are terrifying. <laughs> Well, and and I remember those times during med school, um, I developed sleep apnea about the time I started medical school. Sleep apnea as a condition uh, significantly affects concentration and memory. Right. And I remember how difficult it was to study and to focus, because I couldn't. I wasn't getting the sleep at night that I needed, and it wasn't until I started being treated for sleep apnea with a CPAP machine which if you have sleep apnea, please get a seat map machine, it's amazing.
1: You look like Darth Vader and sound like Darth Vader too. Right,
0: When who would not want to sound like Darth Vader in the middle of the night, it's just pretty cool. Exactly. And then you start remembering things again and that's really cool. Right, it's
1: um, one of the frustrating things about that memory about going back to those med school days and thinking about sleep physiology, it's this idea that, look, we lead busy lives. Not just us, but we're talking mostly to Americans from what I understand. Most Americans do not get enough sleep. Exactly. And it's this idea that I got no time. I got things to do. But there's this apocryphal tale. I can't remember from which country, from what culture, but it's the image of somebody chopping down a tree. And they're working as fast as they can, as hard as they can to chop down the tree. Right. And it's taking forever. And it would be so much faster if they stopped for maybe 10, 20 minutes and just sharpened the axe. Right. But they're chopping at the axe with basically a, a ball at this point. Object. Right. And they're not going to chop down nothing, and they're working so damn hard, so nobly hard with the wrong tool, with a blunted tool. And if they just sharpened themselves, the work would get done so much faster. Right. Sleep is a lot like that. You work so much better when you sleep that it is non-negotiable if you want to perform better, let alone just not die of cardiovascular disease.
0: Well, and going to that, uh, along that, that line of reasoning thought, uh, four hours of sleep um, on a night is the equivalent of driving under the influence uh, illegally from alcohol. Right. And then you combine that with alcohol, and that's just a re- recipe for disaster. But uh, sleep deprivation by itself has been causing some significant problems in our society. I mean, we, we talk from the osteopathic standpoint about musculoskeletal pain. Come to find out, sleep deprivation leads to pain. We also know that um, when you're sleep deprived, you're not able to process emotion very well. And so it can make um, emotions more raw and more difficult to control. So you combine those two, we know also that emotions and chronic pain are processed often in the same location in the prefrontal cortex. Right. So we can't control either of those. That just makes things worse. It's really interesting. When I have a patient come into my, to my office, we've already discussed in the past that my first question to them is how well they're hydrating themselves. My second question is how well they're sleeping. But doc, what does this have to do with my pain? Because it's causing your pain. And then if you can get some sleep, maybe your pain may not improve significantly, but your ability to process that pain and your ability to deal with that pain changes right. significantly. because at the end of the
1: day, it, look, if you have an injury, we need to fix the injury. You break an arm, it probably needs to be, you know, pinned and screwed. If you have a muscle strain, we need to work it out of your, you or mm-hmm. you work it out of yourself. But the thing that makes it stick, the thing that makes it yours, the thing that makes it able to get out of our office and move on with life is the recovery. And if re- sleep is the foundation upon which recovery stands, if you don't sleep, we're just going to be spinning our wheels and I'm going to see you every month until you give up or I get frustrated. Sleep is part of the means through which you overcome your issues. And that's not something that gets enough credit because you think, yeah, the doctor worked it out of me. My back feels great. I'm going to come back in two weeks and he's going to work it out of me again because it's still in my system. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You it's don't like, understand. Wait
0: a second. We can fix this for real. Take a nap. Right. And, and that's a, it's remarkable how just adding extra sleep to your daily diet of healthy habits can make all of the difference. One of the aspects of sleep apnea and and sleep in general, or or lack of sleep, is you're rolling around in bed trying to get comfortable. Well, that rolling around in bed activates all sorts of muscles. You don't even realize you're exercising those muscles. And then you wake up in the morning and you go, oh, man, my back's killing me. Well, yeah, you were rolling around in bed. Right. um, Because you weren't getting good, adequate sleep. Now you change that, you get enough sleep, you get adequate sleep, and you're waking up feeling more restful. Right. More rested. More rested. And
1: the mechanism behind so much of that is both elegant and terrifying. Elegant because, hey, when you map out stuff in your software, that's kind of dope. But it's terrifying because of the dark consequences. So the thing sleep specifically does is it organizes, it reorganizes, consolidates our brain such that... Our prefrontal cortex, and for those who don't have a strong neurobiology background, that's the part of your brain that makes you human, as far as we're concerned. That's the cognitive portion, the part of you that, you know. That's thinking the that. emotions
0: chip from data on uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation. Exactly. I just i put that out.
1: Um, think about the. Uh, there's an old metaphor for the brain as you have the lizard brain, the mammal brain, and the human brain. Right. The lizard brain is that thing which keeps you alive. That's the that's all the that underlying brain, stuff. All of that. Right, that's your amygdala, your hypothalamus, the yeah, parts that keep yeah. the machine going. Keeps you breathing. Right, you have the mammalian brain, which is the emotive brain, the emotional brain, the I'm hungry, I must do a thing, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm any of those things. The cognitive portion of your brain, the one that dreams, things, creates, mm. that is, makes you human. Right, that's your prefrontal cortex, and that's the part that's most susceptible to sleep deprivation. It doesn't get to fire, it doesn't get to work well, when you're deprived of sleep, and why is that a problem? Problem number one is you're, by all technical definitions, slightly less human, but problem number two, when your prefrontal cortex is not working the way it ought to, it doesn't get to do one of its key jobs, which is inhibiting the limbic system. What part of the limbic system? Specifically the amygdala. Now, why does that matter? The amygdala is this little, little olive-sized cluster of cells inside your brain Mm -hmm. and it's responsible for your lust, your hunger, and your fear. All those deadly sins. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It controls the deadly sins.
1: Right. And here's the thing. Most folks think, oh, it's the the older part of my brain. It's the archaic part. I don't know how much of y'all read fantasy novels, but archaic means strong most of the time. (laughs) The ancient brain. The ancient brain is the part of you that's running underneath. The ancestors. Right. The prefrontal cortex is what we use to almost subdue and tame and temper the amygdalic portion of our brain. And without that tempering agent, it's like, I don't know, unlocking darkness from the void or something. And all of a sudden,
0: all of that rush of insane emotional energy,
1: mm. it sounds really fantastical, right? Well, yeah. It pours out of us.
0: We, we've seen uh, cases where people have lost their, their prefrontal cortex through various means, usually trauma. Phineas? And, uh, yes. <laughs> and then what happens to them? He they, becomes a rage-filled, lust-filled Shadow of who he used
1: to be, yeah. Because he lost his prefrontal, and you can chemically and behaviorally lobotomize yourself if you were to
0: not sleep enough. Oh, that's a great, that's a great comparison. You just s- sleep deprivation is is a self lobotomy. Yeah,
1: and I don't know if you've ever seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but um, Jack Nicholson with a lobotomy is terrifying. Here's a fun fact. Although, this time the fact isn't so much fun as it is morbid, but profoundly important. Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were two very powerful and influential political personas throughout the 20th century. These two were both vocal and proud of the fact that they only needed about four hours of sleep per night in order to do their thing. Now, it's one thing to say you only need four hours, however, Both of these individuals ended up developing Alzheimer's at a relatively young age. We found out much later on that sleep, or rather the lack of sleep, will end up causing Alzheimer's pathology,
0: the details of which we're going to discuss now. All right, so we've talked about how sleep categorizes memory. But there's a very functional aspect, a mechanical aspect that we need to discuss to determine uh, and really to understand the the health benefits of sleep. Now, traditionally speaking, when you say brain drain, that's a negative connotation, something negative happening. But in reality, our brain does need to drain. Our brain needs to get rid of chemicals that are otherwise building up and causing issues. And that is the true value of the glymphatic system. Now, up until 2009. 2009, there was no evidence that there was an actual connection between the brain and the lymphatic system. And then 2009 comes out, whoa, wait a second, wrong. There is a connection, and it's an important connection, and that's called the glymphatic system. Um, we build up all sorts of byproducts like we talked about, and if we don't get rid of them, what happens? So,
1: essentially, if things do not drain, they clog and collect. Um... I would hate to make the metaphor and the imagery of your brain as a toilet, but you see where we're going with this one. If you don't (laughs) Uh, flush, (laughs) you're full of...
0: You might say that this conversation is going down the toilet. Indeed.
1: (laughs) So (laughs) the reason we need that flushing, that lymphatic, that glymphatic, first of all, let's break down that word, glymphatic. It's a unification of two words, glia Mm -hmm. and lymph. Right. Why? Because one of the big issues with this physiology was, okay, we have a lymphatic system. The lymphatic system is responsible for taking all of the metabolic processes um, and metabolic waste products, after effects, after things in our body and washing them away into central processing so they can be digested, detoxified, and taken out of us, right? Excreted. Excreted, yes. Now, we also have the glia whose job is to protect the brain from itself and from everything else. It makes a blood-brain barrier, makes a wall of protection so that it's airtight, chemically tight, Except More for blood those tied, things it right. wants to get in, exactly. Yeah, yeah, blood-brain barrier. And for a while, we thought that the way our body, the way our brain took out its waste products was through the venous system, and hey, that's a good idea. It's possible. I mean, we didn't have really good evidence for it, but... Right. If you don't believe that there's a lymphatic connection to the brain, it has to leave somehow. Why not the venous sinuses? Because that's what the, the venous blood does
0: in other cases. It takes out blood that needs to be processed and... Precisely. ...reoxygenated and, and the like.
1: And then we discovered the aquaporin four channel.
0: What? <laughs> yeah, aquaporin that's how nerdy we that, are, that, that that's that that exciting for us. That sounds like for sci-fi a series, aquaporin four.
1: Indeed. So aquaporin, that's an, that's another word to play with. Aquaporin. It is a pore, like, you know, skin like pore. A, a hole, essentially. For water. And four because it's the fourth one or however oh, you we right. name it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's how we roll.
1: But the aquaporin four channel is a membrane, a transmembrane channel that is controlled by, managed by your glia such mm-hmm. that your brain can drain into the lymphatics. Brain drain, it works. We found it, we found the connection. Not we, you and I, but the greater scientific <laughs> we. Humanity it, has found the if connection. If only we had found it. But. Then I would be no, so, way richer, yeah. not really. Well, Scientists don't get paid nothing. You, you'd have clout. I would at least have clout. <laughs> but this aquaporin four channel was the thing that changed the nature of the game. Because the aquaporin four channel exists, We now found the means through which the brain drains into the lymphatic, as in connects to the greater waste processing system of our body. Now, the thing is, the aquaporin 4 channel isn't always open. Mm -hmm. And when it is open, it can only open so much. It turns out when you are awake, you drain at a certain rate. Right. Fair enough. That makes sense. When you sleep, when you sleep, the channels open further, you open more channels, the rate of brain drainage goes up by a a factor of three. And you think, oh, one, three, what's the big deal here? I don't know if that's a really big deal. Intuitively, however, the difference between one and three in this context, the difference between that order of magnitude and not is the difference
0: between you flushing out beta amyloid or not. Oh, beta amyloid. That's nasty stuff right there. Indeed. So we're talking about the difference between getting Alzheimer's disease and not. Indeed. Because what ends up happening is we didn't know where beta amyloid
1: came from in in the strictest sense. We know what it does, we know its physiology, but we never really understood what made it precipitate out into the neurons, what made it deposit into the body. Mm-hmm. And it turns out it's an issue of flow, right? In the way that stagnation is bad for your heart because of the what the collection of foam cells and cholesterol, right? Yeah, Oxide cholesterol. Talking about flow again. Exactly. When you have this bad drainage, when you have stagnation of these fluids in your brain, the things that are carried by that fluid get to precipitate out and deposit in places they don't belong. And one of those things is the beta amyloid plaque. Why does that matter? Beta amyloid is the, we'll say, the proteinaceous plaque that seems to mediate the cellular destruction. It's the protein gunk that uh, gets in the sink. Indeed. And when you gunk up enough things, you get Alzheimer's disease also known by some folks as old timers disease, because it's easier to say than Alzheimer's. Why do we call it old timers disease? Because people thought that as you get older, your brain gets weaker, your memory fades. Now, that's not necessarily the case. No. It turns out that memory fading, that neural degeneration, is mediated by, among other things, primarily this plaque. And the reason this plaque builds up is because it got stuck. What got it stuck in the first place? It's because it never got flushed out.
0: Someone didn't sleep long enough for it to get flushed out. Indeed. So, you know, we increase the rate, but if we don't increase the duration, you're not going to have a complete drainage. And unfortunately, we don't have any Drano to pour down the aquaporin to uh, clear the rest of the brain of this stuff. Right. And unfortunately, it's it's not soluble. Once it deposits, it's really tough to get rid of, just in general.
1: One of the things about beta plaques is, by virtue of the way they're shaped, we can't actually digest, degr- degrade. They're there now. We can prevent them from getting to that position. We can prevent them from getting there. But once it's deposited, it's it's there. There, you can't rotor root the brain, man. It's not that. It's not a if coronary only. vessel. You now, if you could figure that out, you'd be a billionaire. Then I'd be rich. <laughs> now, the reason we say that is because sleep doesn't just help you defrag. Mm-hmm. Sleep is the equivalent of. Um, I guess taking out the shell of your computer, looking inside and cleaning off the dust.
0: Yeah, you take the uh, canned dust and canned air and uh, blow it out. Right. Yeah. And um, you
1: can imagine that's a bad idea to do when the computer's turned on.
0: Yeah, we generally tell people if they're going to open up their computer that uh, they unplug it first. Right. Sometimes you got to
1: turn the computer off. Now, what does that mean for us osteopathically? What does that mean for our hands? Because at the end of the day, this is Roland Bones, the Osteopathic Podcast. Right. And even though we talk about how this connects to our field, it's not that this is connected to our field. We actually have a hand in the game. We have a way to. Affect or two this. hands in the game.
0: I'm hanging out with you way too much <laughs> with these puns, man. Well, it is a crazy form of punish. Indeed. Jesus Christ. I did it again. He did. Um,
1: <laughs> there are ways we can help with this process. Yes. And it's a gratifying and beautiful thing when I can have my patient come back after, you know, after a session and they say, hey doc, I, I actually slept. And that to me means so much more than their pain because if they were able to sleep when they once could not sleep, I now know that their
0: system of recovery is back. The rebooting process has started. Right. So we have to help improve both movement within the cranium itself and flow outside of the cranium. Right. And that's squarely within the realm of what an osteopathic physician will do, especially using osteopathic manipulative treatment. I mean, one of the main focuses of what we do is lymphatic drainage. We talk about getting it to move, but it doesn't matter if we get it to move if we can't get it to drain. Indeed. And so this whole brain drain idea is enhanced by what we do. One of the very first techniques we learn
1: in cranial osteopathic medicine Mm -hmm. is actually how to do this. And it does not get the honor that it deserves for what it is. There's a technique you call a CV4 technique. right? Previously called um, milking of the fourth ventricle, but then they realize that milking sounds really weird to people.
0: Yeah, I don't like
1: to have my brain milked. Per so they
0: called it compression
1: of the fourth ventricle, and then they realize that that's just way too many syllables, so we now call it the CV4 technique, as developed by Dr. Sutherland, and it is it's strange because it's one of the first moves we learn to do because it's also the best drill in learning how to palpate the cranial rhythms, the ebbs mm-hmm. and flows of fluid anyway. But it's also one of the most powerful things we have. The, I learned how to do my cranial manipulation through um, the Viola Fryman School mm-hmm. of, of uh, cranial manipulation. And there was this lovely video of her talking about if all else fails, if you have no idea what to do for your patient, have them lie down, tell them to shut up, and do the C V four. That can be the most difficult aspect right there. Indeed. And it was this idea that if all else fails, go for the root. Um there's this really cool quote about like a barbarian pulling at the leaves and a brute chopping at the trunk. The sage goes for the root. And the root in this context is the C V four.
0: And you know, it's it's interesting when when you're doing this, um, often our patients will fall asleep. Good. Which suggests that we are at the right location, doing the right thing. It's also a very simple technique in that a patient won't realize you're doing anything big. You're not taking a back and cracking it or popping it. You're not doing any big motions or movements that's commonly associated with the osteopathic approach to treatment. But often it's these gentle, uh, keystone-type approaches that really get the biggest effect, the biggest amount of change. Right. It might take a few days before you start noticing, hey, you know, I'm sleeping a little bit better than I was. Oh, and by the way, my my neck's not hurting quite so much as it was either. It's fascinating. It's sometimes creepy in all
1: seriousness because you would think that putting your hands on the back of someone's occiput and just waiting and doing the right thing in that position shouldn't be as profound as it is, but the deeper you dive into the physiology, the more you can learn to appreciate what's actually happening here. So your connective tissue from Every, every piece of it, from the dura inside your skull down to the little fibers in your toes is very richly innervated by nerves, um, right. by free nerve fibers.
0: I mean, even in the sutures between the cranial bones, there are nerve endings, which if, the, if, the, if those sutures weren't meant to move, there would be no reason to have a nerve ending in the suture. You could, you could possibly understand a nerve going through the suture, but these nerve endings are actually in the suture.
1: And that's pretty cool.
0: It's pretty amazing stuff. So what ends up happening is
1: your brain controls this, f- this motor command, this broad, fascial-wide signal for your body to expand and contract just a little bit. It, imagine like a wave of movement running from your brain and your spine out into your fingertips and back like a tide. Oh, wait a second. We've already talked about this. Indeed.
0: We're talking again about it.
1: This is great. Right, because we talk once upon a time about how water and keeping the body good to go will help the tide flow. This is actually, so if, if the tide that we're talking about is something like the ocean's tide, right? Right. This is something akin to, and this is where we get really fantastical, it's kind of like messing with the tide generating system itself. We're going straight for the moon here.
0: Oh, we're, we're going for a moonshot. Uh, I'm thinking about honeymooners now. But, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, or maybe a wave pool? There you go. <laughs> a wave but generator?
1: What happens with what this is. technique is you facilitate the contractile tension and release of your body mm-hmm. at the level of the tension and release generating system. What ends up happening is when you get the fascia to wind and unwind and you do it just right, that seems to correlate with relaxation at the structural level. Your body, for whatever reason, and I'll admit the mechanism's fuzzy here, but at least we have data to suggest that this is the sequence of events. Right. If you do the CV4 technique correctly, you get the body to wind and unwind. That seems to correlate with creating the aquaporin four channels to open, which is a big deal because once they begin to open, your body picks up that cue and goes, oh, I'm doing the sleep thing. And then it goes into what you call an alpha state, which is not the same thing as punching a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> I should hope not. Right. This isn't that alpha. This is uh, this is a brainwave state called alpha wave. It is the state of right. that restful state that isn't sleepy. It is. Imagine you had a really good day. You lie down in bed. You're not sleepy yet, but you're, but just you're starting feeling to calm very down. Good. Right. You're good to go. You're resting, and it looks like if you do a CV four correctly, you can mechanically induce the state of the beginning of sleep. If we talk about drifting off into dreams, right, drifting right. into sleep, the CV four technique, well done, is something like taking your patient. And walking them to the shore, putting them in the boat, and saying, you know what to do.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very much like melatonin. You know, melatonin in the, as the sleep hormone, quote-unquote, is not truly inducing sleep. It just tells your body, now it's time to sleep. Indeed. The same thing with the CV4. You're signaling to the body, okay, now it's time to sleep. Right. Which is oh, it's, it's one of the great things about doing the CV4 technique getting patients away from using all of those sedative medications out there that don't actually induce this state. You know, we talk about all of the sleep aids, but I'm not a huge fan of them because they don't tell your body to sleep. They don't signal the body to go into any sleep cycle. They just sedate your brain. You make you unaware. Your sleep cycle doesn't change. Let's go you back don't to get the, any benefits from the sleep. You just get knocked out.
1: Let's go back to that computer metaphor we started with. There's a difference between clicking the start menu, hitting the shutdown button, and letting the process do its thing versus Pulling hitting the plug. Exactly. And they
0: are meaningfully different, are they not? Yeah, yeah. So any of you are, uh, you have to understand, I'm coming from a computer tech background. I, I have a degree in software engineering. I've been a geek uh, on the tech side for a long time. Um, when you hit Alt F4, it's a, a command that, are, that will shut down processes that are running. And you keep on hitting Alt F4, you shut down processes sequentially until you get to the process that's keeping the computer on, and it'll give you the option to shut down. If you go into the Start menu of Windows and tell it to shut down, you'll notice it doesn't just turn off, but the system, the Windows operating system and all operating systems like this, will shut down processes one by one so that you don't you lose data. If you, on the other hand, have a power outage or you just unplug the computer, then you run the risk of losing data that was stuck in memory being used at one point or another for some kind of process. Then when you turn the computer back on, it loses track of where that data is and that data becomes corrupted. You can lose files. That's why um, if you quick eject a, a flash drive, it'll say, do you want to do this? You might lose data that's being used it's no bueno for your computer. Same thing with um, taking a sedative medication. You're shutting down the system before you have a chance to process things, and you're not going into those beneficial sleep cycles that we normally need to use. Precisely. I remember when I was an intern, uh, the very, very first year of my medical
1: uh, training, my attending when I was rounding in the hospital talked about how angry she was that I prescribed Ambien for one of her patients because she needed sleep in the hospital. And I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong with this lady? She needed sleep, and I helped her sleep. Why is this a problem? And she's like, and she didn't necessarily have the full physiology. She just knew because she saw some of the mortality data. She goes, if you give this medication, if you give Ambien for your patients so that they can sleep, their chance of dying for all-cause mortality goes up across the board. Why? I have no
0: idea, but it kills them. Don't do it. And I'm like, ma'am, yes, (laughs) ma'am. I'm going to I'm gonna avoid that, and, and as a matter of fact, I remember many nights in the hospital, when you're running the night shift, you get so many calls from nurses saying, so-and-so can't sleep, could you give some Ambien? And my first question to those nurses would be, are they watching TV? My second question was, are the lights off? My third question was, did you give them melatonin? My fourth question was, did you shut the blinds? All of these things before, and all of these things had to happen before I would ever prescribe any any kind of sleep aid because of the understanding that if you don't have the right sleep environment, you don't set yourself up for a good sleep environment, you're not gonna get good sleep. And I hate to say it, but hospitals are not the best place to sleep. That's why they're not hotels. You mean you can't sleep well in a hospital? Uh, no. Oh, <laughs> who'd have thought? Who'd have thunk?
1: But yeah, there's really something to it because sleep is a surprisingly active phenomenon. You would think it's as easy as close our eyes, wait for something to happen, and you're in dreamland. But it's it's an extremely complicated, coordinated effort of your brain to switch from sleep mode. People think sleep is restful. It's restful for your consciousness. But the brain is as active, technically, sometimes more active than when you're right. awake in the first place.
0: Because it has to clean up the mess you made when you were conscious. Yeah, we're all pretty messy. And then... The brain's like, oh, well, I've got to be the nanny again and, or the uh, maid again and clean, clean up your mess. Right. My kid runs around the house, throws every toy everywhere in the living room,
1: goes to bed at about, like, eight thirty nine p.m., and then when he wakes up, the house is good again, and he's like... Great,
0: I can mess it up again. <laughs> right?
1: Little does he know, mom and dad that's, are out there.
0: That, that's a great analogy. I, I can see your, your kiddo just running around in your brain, just <laughs> throwing things around when you're awake, and then you go to sleep, and, or the, the kiddo goes to sleep, and now your brain's like, okay, time to pick it up.
1: Exactly, and he can go off and play again, have fun in his house, his playground. But imagine if we didn't clean it up. All of a sudden, his toys are everywhere, there's food gunked up here, there's dog poop here. All <laughs> of a sudden, that house is a mess, and all of a sudden, my child can't play. Right. If you don't clean up your house,
0: your kid can't play. If you do not sleep, your mind cannot function. And if you don't set your mind up for sleep, you won't go to sleep, or if you do go to sleep, it will be fitful.
1: Right. And you would think that, oh, hey, we're osteopaths. We can do really cool stuff with our hands. Maybe the CV-4 is good enough. What if I just ran that and had a guy who can, on call, put me that way? As good as our hands are, they're not that good. They're not that good. What we can do is, walk them to the shore of sleep, right? We can show them the way, but at the end of the day, they need to learn to sleep. And we can preview that, train them for that, we can guide them, but there's no replacement for the real thing. In the same way that um, a good friend of mine asked, is there anything I can do to make myself need less sleep? And he asked sincerely, because we're all Mm -hmm. about high performance and all that type of stuff. And I told him, if I find a way, I'm going to tell you, because I need to find it too, but it's, I'm realizing more and more. It's like asking, "Is there something we can do so that I need less water? Is there something I can do so I need less food?" And in the same way that you need food and you know water and movement, there is no pill to replace the fundamental, primal thing that is the
0: sleep cycle, and it's it's valuable. I mean, sleep is vital, more vital than pretty much anything else we do. Right. So. I'd like to refer you to a, a very a valuable and influential book that, that has changed the way I approach sleep with my patients. The book is, is titled Why We Sleep. It's by Matthew Walker, PhD. He's a sleep specialist. has studied sleep for the last several decades. Get that book. Read that book. It will change the way you view sleep. In the meantime, while you're struggling with sleep, come and see one of us so we can do some CV4 and other techniques to help improve the drainage from your brain so we can help find the problem, fix a problem, and then we'll leave it alone. And thanks again for joining us for Rollin' Bones, The Osteopathic Podcast. This is the end of season one. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to chatting with you for season two. Watch for that in a few months.
2: Thank you for listening to Roland Bones, the Osteopathic Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Roland Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at RollinBonesPod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Executive Producer Brenda Jaskulski, Producer Rob Upchurch, and Medical Advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Roland Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances, shall James Aston, Dante Perez, Saj Survey podcast producers the university of north texas texas college of osteopathic medicine or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony no guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast this podcast is hipaa compliant while you may give your email address to make comments or requests we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission